Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode, I just have a few random thoughts for you. We'll call this the random thoughts episode. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. So, tis the holiday season. It's around the New Year's. We're just on the eve of it. And I have been here and there, out and about, but also in the online world. And I've seen what people are saying. And I'm routinely shocked. Shocked at what people are saying. I saw a doctor say something like, um, yet another reminder not to meet your family and yet a reminder to wear masks is, you should know that if you don't, If your loved one dies in the intensive care unit, you're going to have to say goodbye via this whiteboard or this iPad, and they show some grotesque, grotesque communication device. And I thought to myself, that is a horrible thing to say for a medical professional to say that. Many hospitals have created this policy, of course, which I've talked about on some other shows and um, in a video online with Z-Dog, about visitation policies around SARS-CoV-2. And... What might have been understandable in March when there were times of PPE shortages extended all the way to the present moment where many patients are not allowed visitors. Folks with COVID-19, folks without COVID-19, the visitation policies are draconian. They're especially horrible when somebody is dying. I, 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 I don't see any justification for it, I think. One option would be to use PPE to allow loved ones to visit. Another option would be to use makeshift PPE if they have to go buy a tablecloth, cut a hole in the top, stick their head out, and put a cloth mask and bandana over their hair, and to throw all those out on their way out, to wear dishwashing gloves over their hands. I think that would be better than the current policy. There's a nice op-ed in the Globe and Mail from the good folks in Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, where they point out that the data that this policy that hospital visitors transmit and drive the epidemic is threadbare. In fact, it's very unlikely to occur. With these sensible precautions, it would be incredibly unlikely to change the overall calculus of the epidemic. The PPE shortage is not the same as it once was. Somebody said, oh, but some hospitals are overloaded. Many hospitals are not overloaded. Okay, some hospitals are, but many are not. The ones that are not are also having this grotesque policy. This is a human rights violation. That's what I said. It is torture and degrading treatment towards human beings. Using this as a cudgel, a club, to bully people, to follow your idea of public health recommendations is grotesque. It sickens me. It's antithetical to the oath of being a doctor. So I'm offended that somebody would do that. I'm offended by the policy itself. The doctor's duty is to fight the policy. The doctor's oath is to fight the policy. The people should fight the policy. The policy is ridiculous. There are things worse than death. Loss of humanity is one. And if you give up the humanity of holding someone's hand when they die, 
to have a son know that many, many people are visiting his father 50 feet away, but he can't go visit his father and his father has to die alone. That to me is, 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 is a price that we cannot pay. We will have lost what we, what we hope to live for. What are we living for? We're living for these moments. We're living for the opportunity to engage in these emotional moments with people, with others. So I think it's, it's despicable. I don't know why anyone allows it. I, I honestly think I do know why they allow it. They allow it because hospitals are become administrative states. We're bureaucrats. We're people who worry about liability control decisions and not people who actually know how to do things. People who actually are the agents of change. It's not controlled by doctors anymore. It's controlled by people who may have once been doctors, but they're not doctors anymore. Controlled by people who are distant and removed from the practice and the humanity of medicine. And so I have nothing but contempt for these policies and nothing but contempt for people complicit in the policies and nothing but contempt for people who would use this policy to achieve a cheap fucking tweet. That's what really sickens me. Those people really sicken me. So I said this in a tweet. And I got some pushback, of course, because my tweet has gotten something like perhaps even the most popular tweet I have had, something like 900 retweets. I didn't mean for it to go that that viral. In fact, I prefer it not to, as I'll come to in the next part of my discussion. Uh, but it, it received many retweets, and a lot of people, I think, felt similarly, including a lot of doctors, a lot of people who are suffering the emotional anguish that comes when this is, in fact, the policy. Somebody sent me this. This is a physician, a very, very senior and eminent academic. Quote, it's not just the COVID patients who get fucked. It's all the non-COVID patients with restrictive measures who don't get to see their families, their kids, while the, what the fuck, 25-year-olds in IT get vaccines because they work for a hospital and dumb rules continue to be enforced because we are sheep. We are far enough into this to shake off panic and apply sense. It is no longer an unknown. Moral injury is rampant and often irreversible. God bless this person, you know. This person is um, spot on. This person is a real, a real physician who's working very hard um, and has always worked very hard. And they know what it means to be a real physician. And they know what it means to make these decisions. And these decisions ought to be made by people who are practicing at the bedside. They can't be made by people who are not. That's one of the cruxes of the issue. That's why they have inhumanity. Because it's easy to be inhumane when you don't have to look in the eyes of the person who you are doing this to complicit in this human rights violation. So then I had some people come in my feet and, and most people agree with me, but some people got in my craw. One person says, you've exaggerated. This is a human rights violation. No, I've exaggerated. Have I? You can go straight to hell because I have not exaggerated. In fact, I choose my words quite carefully. And this word was chosen because that is in fact what it is. It is in fact the same thing as a human rights violation because you're separating somebody often with no good reason, because you've got plenty of PPE in the cabinet and you have many people going in that room who probably could have curtailed their visit and they could have given the PPE to the family member. So it is a human rights violation that it doesn't even make sense. It's, it's part of some hysteria, some fear, some liability, some nonsense. I, I, I don't even know what to say. It is, in fact, it is, in fact, a human rights violation. That is exactly what it is. Then I had somebody, a doctor, who said, um, have you had a patient die of SARS-CoV-2? And I said, yes. But actually, I also said that the answer to the question is not germane to this point. It's not germane. You are arguing so poorly if you want to respond to my comment and ask some follow-up question about what I'm doing. That's not the argument. If you believe this policy is just, then you should come and say, well, here's, here, let, me, let me pretend to be you. Um, you need to say, 
I'm sympathetic that this is a very hurtful thing, but I believe more people will die and there'll be more loss of life and greater human tragedy, in fact, if we had a different policy. If you said that, that would be an argument. You would, in fact, be wrong. It would be the, one of the worst arguments I've ever heard because that's almost certainly not the case. If you thought about the situation for a minute and thought about the transmissibility of the number of people who would be spreading it to other people and the possibility of them getting sick, it's going to pale in comparison to the, 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 the loss of moral dignity in the moment in and of itself um, when proper precautions are applied, even disposable and temporary and, and adjunct and ad hoc precautions. Um, so I think you'd be technically wrong. It would be incorrect empirically, but at least that would be an argument. Instead, they say stupid things in my feed because they don't know how to argue. They don't know how to argue. And if you don't know how to argue, what you really are saying is, I don't know how to think because you don't know how to think. You feel emotional. You feel likely that you've been complicit in this policy and you don't like someone pointing that out to you, but you don't know how to justify why you should have done what you did. In fact, you probably didn't think about it enough. And maybe to some degree, you're just saying this because you want to absolve yourself of the guilt that you should feel because you were complicit in a really shitty policy and you really... You really should have known better. I mean, this should be part of the core training of, of becoming a physician. So what's my point here? My point here is twofold. My point here is one, this is a bad thing. And two, you know, people need to learn to argue better. Um, the next thing I saw, you know, I got roped into a tweet where something about, you know, we need to get these people more followers. Who should these people be? And somebody, somebody tagged me and I said, oh God. I said, oh God. Oh no, not me. Please no. More followers equals more problems. In fact, I hope that a thousand people unfollow me today. In fact, I went on about it, um, but it was it was not a joke. It's the it's the truth. In fact, I hope I hope to have fewer people following me on Twitter. The fewer, the better. I want to have the right people following me. People who are open minded, who want to consider different points of view, who want to debate those points of view constructively, who don't want to play some stupid game asking me personal questions in response to this comment. Um, you know, I want to be followed by the right people, thoughtful people. I fear that I could lose at least a few few grand, easy, few, few grand I could lose, like nothing, and I, I would be better off for it. I got to lose, like, it's like, it's like sometimes you get on that scale and you're like, oh boy, I really got to get things, I got to pull this together. It's just like that on Twitter, you know, I got to lose, you know, 20%, man, 20, easy, easy 20%, it's got to go. Um, and and there's a lot of truth to that. And I think people who are aspiring for the followers, um, you know, they may have diverse intents, they may want to get their message out there. They are, they're not, I promise you, that's not really what you want. You really do not want more followers. You should not want that in this way. You don't want people to highlight your name and get you the followers. You want to grow it organically. You want the people who follow you to want to talk about what you want to talk about. You don't want some major account. You don't want Barack Obama to tweet your account and say, this is a must-follow account. That's the, the, it's over. Your life is over. You're going to be followed by so many people who, who lack the tools to even participate in the dialogues you wish to participate in. If you are a technical expert of any kind, you're really going to be quite miserable, I think. You're going to hate it. You can't use that app. You're, 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 you're not going to know what to do. You're, I... I don't know what's going to happen to you. A lot of people will sink. You might not swim. So I really think you don't want that. You don't want that kind of amplification. Um, you want it to be organic. You want the people who you want, and you don't need any more. Um, there's, there's no gain from having bad followers, bad followers, people who don't know how to argue, people who took, obviously this person who, who lashed out at me. I mean, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect this person was a participant in this, in this sort of thing. And they felt hurt that somebody would say that this is, you know, a human rights violation because God, you know, none of us want to be participants in human rights violations, but 
They were. That's it. They are the same way lots of people throughout human history have been participants in human rights violations that they felt at the time was reasonable to do. They didn't question because it's natural for human beings not to question what they've been tasked to do, especially when that is task is being given to them by authority. And that's what happens here. That's how human rights violations get perpetuated. That's why you need somebody to come and say that to you. So you don't want followers like that. You know, people who are too closed, too closed to themselves, to their feelings, to what they've done to really hear what I had to say. So I'm hoping if you're listening to this now, if you're listening to this now, I feel like you're probably in the cohort of followers I do want. But if you think you're in the cohort I don't want, please unfollow and stop listening. Stop listening right now. I, I beg you to stop listening if you if you don't see the logic of what I'm saying. Next topic, Norman Wang. For listeners who are just joining in, I've been talking about the Norman Wang saga on this podcast for, for quite a while now. What happened? Norman Wang is a Asian-American professor of electrophysiology at the University of Pittsburgh. Norman Wang wrote an article for the Journal of the American Heart Association, which was called a white paper. Now, nothing, nothing was contrary to what you read on the internet. Nothing was meant by that. A white paper is simply a term used to describe papers that are sort of thought pieces reflective about where we are as a field or profession. It's not meant to have any racial connotations. And yet, it, it was alleged to. But, but it wasn't. It's just a, just a paper. It was published in JAHA. Went through their usual process, whatever that process is. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it went through their process. Journals have their processes. This one through it. It came out with some long papers, like 10 pages. And it was about the role of affirmative action in medical and graduate medical education. That's exactly what it was about. And Norman Wang very carefully went through the legal history, the Supreme Court decisions that frame the constitutionality of the use of race-based considerations in admissions policies and admissions prioritization. And Norman Wang, I think it's fair to say that his ultimate point of view is rather consistent with the majority of the Supreme Court, probably the six people, the six-three majority, and probably most similar to Justice John G. Roberts, um, in that he believes that we ought not to take into account race in admissions processes. This is his belief. I'm, I want to articulate it as fairly as I can. That, in fact, he believes that would be unconstitutional for a number of ways under equal protection and under some other doctrines. You can go back to an episode I did with Leah Littman where she kind of articulated that. Um, she's a professor of law at the University of Michigan. Um, he believes that it is it is against the Constitution, but he, he goes one step further. He actually believes that it is it's not actually beneficial policy. It doesn't actually advance the interests of minority groups. That's his view. Um, and I think that view is rather consistent with the John G. Roberts court. Um, there have been some court decisions that have curtailed a lot of the ways in which universities previously were able to use it at affirmative action policies. Um, and many worry, many legal analysts worry, including Leah Littman, who is a professor, a left-leaning professor of law who came on this podcast, that in the future they will further erode um, these 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 this ability to, to use race as one factor among other factors to to create a diverse body in your university or your institution. So, you know, he's, I think, a right of center person. 
He's right of center on this issue, and he published this article in Jaha. And the article was doing what articles like this do best. It was doing what they do best. You know what that is? That is nobody read it at all. I suspect that very few people read it because you know what? Nobody reads articles like this in Jaha. If you wanted to read an article about the history of the Supreme Court's affirmative action policies, you wouldn't look in Jaha. You'd look in some legal book, okay? I mean, that's what I would think. So it was doing, it was doing nothing. Then, of course, several months later, somebody found it on the internet and they, they served it up on a platter in a tweet pointing about how this is antithetical to certainly to liberal values and principles, which dominate in academic medical centers. Let's be honest, they dominate. And I myself am in that dominant, dominant group. I, 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 I agree that um, I, think, I think these policies are, 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 are certainly not or ought not to be illegal and, um, and, and, and can be used by universities. Anyway, I'll come to that. But I'm just telling you the history. So this person tweeted this thing. And it got the the typical many, 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 one more many people added their voice to the chorus that this is a problematic article and that this article is hurtful, this article is wrong, and that Norman Wang's got to go. This guy's got to go. And the University of Pittsburgh, very quickly, in short order, they removed him as director of the fellowship program in clinical electrophysiology. Um, in, in what's just come out now is actually his lawsuit. Um, so actually it says that he's actually been banned, um, from working with any student or resident or trainee. Um, he's, he's not allowed to work with them or talk to them. Um, yeah, he lost title. And as is detailed in, in the litigation, um, the plaintiff's contract with uh, the University of Pittsburgh provides that he's eligible for additional compensation above his base salary, um, based on productivity, based on doing these things, and that that salary compensation has been, has been removed. So, um, long story short, professor writes an article that I think is consistent with the right of center Supreme Court. Um, however, I think is against the dominant philosophical thinking in, in most academic medical centers. Uh, he published it in the Journal of the American Heart Association. It was ignored for a long period of time. Like journal articles are marvelously, they do a real damn good job of having no one read them. Um, then somebody found it. They were um, bothered by it, troubled by it. And a group of people, of many, many people, joined in that discussion um, and, 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 and pushed hard against this guy. And it ended up with, um, him facing actual, um, demotion. And, uh, the article, uh, was actually retracted by the journal against the consent of Norman Wang. So that was the story. Um, now I want to talk for a minute about where I fall on this issue. I actually think it is, um, I, I, I disagree that the constitution prohibits race thoughtfully considered to be one factor among many that universities use to create a diverse class. I think that the Constitution does not prohibit that. The amendments that occurred in the 1960s were never meant to curtail the ability of universities to preferentially bring in Native American, Hispanic, and African American students to the body in an effort to broaden the diversity. In fact, if anything, those, those, that legislation was because we had discriminated against these groups. In fact, we discriminated, I think, even broader than that. The discrimination was quite broad for pretty much, at some point in this history, anyone who was a non-Caucasian Protestant was discriminated against. I mean, at some point. And immigrants have been discriminated against, and, and people of different skin tones, like my own parents, have been discriminated against. So I think 
I think that these policies were always meant to prevent that kind of discrimination with animus towards different racial minority groups. I think that was why these policies were. Of course, the conservative legal movement has seen an opportunity in recent years to interpret these differently, and their interpretation would be that any consideration of a race under any circumstances would be unconstitutional, would be in fact illegal. That's what they've sought to do. And in fact, I think they've been quite successful at that. They've been quite successful curtailing the ability of universities to have affirmative action programs. And I suspect in the near future, they will cur curtail it entirely. I, in fact, that's I think that's the direction it's going. Um, that may be um, something that folks like Norman Wang like. Um, I actually would believe that would be a bad outcome. Um, it would be an example of the conservatives using the brute force of the judiciary to um, institute a sweeping change across universities. Now, one of the things that gets confused here in this debate is that some people say like, well, how should universities select people for their medical school, their undergraduate program, their cardiology fellowship? The answer is it's none of your business, actually. It's not my business and it's not your business. It's their business. They decide who they pick, okay? They already use so many metrics that would blow your mind. They're using test scores, perhaps. They're using documentation of clinical encounters and people's anecdotal reports of how they did, which introduce all the sorts of biases that come with that. They're using um, step one scores, as long as we had step one scores. They're using extracurricular activities, how many clubs they joined. Did they speak Mandarin? Did they work in Dr. So-and-so's lab? Did they pipette with this pipette or that pipette? Did they work with jellyfish or this embryo or that embryo? Did they work on this receptor, that receptor, the nature paper or not? This is, you know... It's none of your business, honestly. I mean, if you if you came into this field and your goal was to like be like, let's come up with some harmonious and um, indisputable way to pick people for this position, you know, 10 people are going to have feel differently. I don't think it'll be very difficult to get a consensus because they're looking at so many metrics. Now, many of these metrics actually probably to some degree do capture race, class, and privilege because, you know, it's a hell of a lot easier to work in, um, you know, uh, Raj Chetty's economics group if your father is like a famous professor at Harvard, it's a lot easier than if your father's not a famous professor at Harvard. So in a lot of ways, these opportunities themselves are downstream sequela of privilege and class and race. Um, so anyway, they're allowed to look at all that stuff, but they shouldn't be allowed to look at race in addition to that. That to me is crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all. If they want to look at race in addition to those other factors, if they want to look at income of the parents, if they want to look at those other factors too, you know, that's for them. And each university can do what they think is best. They can adjust these factors. Now, if you bring sort of a methodologic purist like me, I'd want to do things like randomization and test different strategies and measure endpoints and all these things. But, you know, that's just what I would do. But, you know, I don't, I, again, I have to earn it. I got to go there and work my way up to get to the job. And to be honest, I doubt that's going to happen to me in this lifetime. But, you know, I have other things I got to do. But anyway, this is this is the game. But the conservative legal movement sees an opportunity, I think, to use the brute force of the law to prevent this one thing. They say, you can look at all that other stuff. You can look at the jellyfish and the pipette tips and the papers in nature and all that stuff, but you can't look at race. That's what they want to say. Um, and, and, and I think the full justification for why I think the legal case is wrong, I think you got to go back to the prior podcast with Leah Littman. She did a marvelous job of articulating that she is, you know, one of the, the best legal minds that I know. Um, and, and her podcast is is fantastic. But um, be, beyond the legal question, what should they do? I think the challenging part for people to, to accept is that, you know, unfortunately, you don't get to decide. And different schools can do different things. That's the hard part. You don't really get to decide. As long as they're not using 
race to further longstanding bigotry and discrimination. They should have a broad latitude in increasing diversity along many different axes, from ideological axes to past experience axes to racial axes to socioeconomic axes. Um, and I believe that that makes much more sense. And if you want to reform an institution, you got to win the hearts and minds of people at that institution. You shouldn't use the brute force of the judiciary. Okay. So all that said is to say that I disagree with Norman Wang. Now, I want to win this argument. I want people to see the world as I see it. I want to change the minds of the Norman Wangs of the world, of which there are many. I can't pretend. I can't put my head in the sand and say they're not people like Norman Wang. He is perhaps even the majority of people. In fact, we just had a proposition in California that was voted by the majority of people that would prevent the use of race consideration in, in, in college admissions. So perhaps, perhaps he is in fact the majority. I want to change their minds. I want to show them that the metrics we're using, you know, I think they have the people have this idea that there's this, some meritocratic scale, some meritocracy scale. We just got to pick the kids that are at the top of the scale. That's what's fair. There is no meritocracy scale. There is no single axis that tells you who deserves the spot and who doesn't. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist for anything you think it exists for. It doesn't exist for analytical intelligence. It doesn't exist for social intelligence. It doesn't exist. There are very rough guides for some of these metrics, but not other metrics. And you don't really know who's most deserving. I think if you're really honest with yourself and you really interrogate the literature and you really try to create predictive models, and if you've spent time actually thinking about predictive models and how well they predict things and, and area under an area under the receiver operator characteristic curve and the necessary and the necessity of gold standards as I have, you will come to a very agnostic conclusion that it's very, very difficult to think of a perfect meritocratic scale. And in the absence of that, I think it's entirely reasonable that universities pursue different interests. One program may want to have some laboratory scientists and some clinicians. One program may want to have broad racial and ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity in the in the incoming class. That's for them to decide. It's not for us to decide. If we want to decide, then we got to go and earn that spot on that in that room that makes those decisions. That's really the, that's the bargain. And it's certainly not going to be done better when by fiat of law, we tell them that you can consider all these other things, but not this one thing. In fact, I honestly doubt that it would lead to any change in behavior, because if you told them that, you have real, really no way to police them. They can find a surrogate for, the, for, the, for race that, that they are allowed to consider. Um, and, other, and, and some of the conservatives have offered socioeconomics as that, but in that case, you're just, you're just, um, you're just tying someone's hand unnecessarily because you're just making it a little bit more difficult for them to do what they're going to do anyway. Um, anyway, um, uh, so so I want to change, but my point here is that I want to change their mind and get them to start to see the challenges with with picking people for any position from college to medical school to graduate medical education. And that although I understand how in some quarters you might believe that if it was race neutral, that would be more fair. The reality is you are missing so many other ways in which the process is unjust and you are hamstringing the ability to use race in, in a way that is actually well-meaning and may in fact actually make, make for a, a more diverse and more interesting class and experience for the people who participate in it. I want to persuade them of that because that's genuinely what I believe. Um, okay. His article comes out, it's not what I believe. The right thing to do for people on my side of the issue is, shh, quiet. No one's going to read his article. Let it go. 
You can't fight every war. And this is a war that's great not to fight because no one's reading this article because it's published in JAHA. And nobody reads this. Nobody reads thought white papers and thought pieces in the Journal of the American Heart Association. Of course they don't. They're lucky to read any articles in that damn journal. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure even the cardiologists, I, I really doubt that, they're, that anyone's reading this article. Until someone saw it as an opportunity to make a point on Twitter. And, and, and that is what I worry about. Because if we want to win the issue, we can't let people use these kinds of examples as a cudgel and a club against the other side because it'll make them martyrs. You're going to lose the issue for us. He's going to win the issue because now he looks very sympathetic because you created a mob frenzy on Twitter to go after him. You retweeted his article thousands of times and everyone said that he was a loathsome, despicable, horrible human being, that you got him to be demoted, to lose salary compensation. You banned him from working with students. You are making this guy a martyr. He wrote an article that no one was reading. You're not winning people who are close to him ideologically. In fact, they view him with more sympathy. It's a misguided calculation. It's like the soldier on your, on my side of the army firing the stray shot and calling causing some catastrophe and hurting our cause. That's what it is. So we on our side of the issue, we have to call this out. This is ridiculous. Anyway, he got these demotions. He is now filed litigation. And the litigation, it's 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 a doozy. Norman Wang, plaintiff against the University of Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, the Wiley, the American Heart Association, Samir Saba, Mark Gladwin, Catherine Berlicker, Mark Simon, and John Doe's one through ten. And this basically says that, you know, he didn't get any due process, his free speech rights are being in uh, are being a infringed upon. He's the subject of these these draconian penalties merely for having published a article in a in a in a peer-reviewed journal through its normal it's through its normal process he submitted his article to jihad went through the normal vetting process they agreed to publish it there's a contractual relationship between between him and the american heart and then the journal and wiley he paid the uh the open access fee four months later when people on interview on social media decided that they didn't like the article they made ad hominem attacks with plaintiff the defendant saba gladwin burlicker and others currently unknown to the plaintiff but return and then and then others unknown to the plaintiff but referred to as john doe's one through five acting on behalf of the defendants they criticized his conclusions and they decided and agreed to impose adverse employment consequences on him. Um, you know, you can read this. You can read this um, this case. Um, Mark Gladwin sent a letter that a prospective article in Jahab published by a faculty member was, quote, antithetical to our values and deeply hurtful to our faculty. We have taken immediate action to remove the person from their leadership position. Um, this is, this is, um, this is bad. And, and it, it and actually says that no one has to date given him a list of things that are incorrect or inaccurate quotes in the article. Uh, he's going to win this case, man. That's the, that's the bottom line. He's going to win it. He's going to win this case. And it's going to, it's not helping. It's not helping us. It's not helping us who really want a more equitable and diverse class. It's, it's helping the people who want to use the fiat of the law to prevent colleges and universities and academic medical centers and all these people from using race as a consideration among other considerations. That's going it's, to, it's, it's helping Norman Wang. Um, it's helping his side of the issue. Um, he's being martyred. Um, and, and, um, I, I suspect if I were to guess this, this case is going to get settled. The lawyers around this case are going to feel differently than all the defendants. They're going to recognize that 
you know, for better or worse, he wrote an article that if it were written by the University of Michigan law professor, certainly would never have received any criticism because that's well within the range of things a law professor is free to write about. And it's a range of view the law professor is free to hold because for Christ's sakes, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court holds that view. So they are going to say that Norman Wang is a faculty member. He has done a lot of research in this. I don't know why it's his interest, but it is his interest. And he wrote about it, and there's no factual errors in this article. Shouldn't have been retracted, and all you people should not have taken these sanctions against him. And I suspect the lawyers involved in this case for Pittsburgh will tell them that you're going to lose this case if you take it to court. You better settle with this guy. And so I suspect there's going to be a settlement. Is it going to be six-figure or seven-figure? might even be a seven-figure settlement. Maybe, God forbid, eight-figure Eight figure. It's going to be seven or eight. I'm going to just make a guess. Seven figure settlement. A high seven figure settlement to Norman Wang. He's going to continue on, I think, as an EP director. Um, he, they may push hard for him to not be able to ever talk about this issue. Um, he may get some adjunct appointment at, um, um, one of the conservative think tanks in DC and, and, and do some scholarship there. Um, and, uh, it, um, it's, 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 it's not helping. And, and all the people who feel like Norman Wang, who we might have reached by a dialogue, by a discussion, by an argument, by a rebuttal, all of those people are going to take their Norman Wang sentiments, the idea that they don't like affirmative action policies. They're never going to speak about it publicly. They're not going to talk about it on Twitter. They're not going to talk on peer reviewed articles. They're going to talk about it in rooms that you do not have access to. They're going to talk about it in places where you don't get to go. You don't police. There's no recordings of it. They're going to talk about it in those settings, and they're going to continue to foster those views. And when you have public referendums, like in California, you can get obliterated in the vote. So this action by vocal social media people who happen to be believing that they're making the world a better place will actually, I believe, make the world a worse place, will actually, I believe, hurt the cause of reasonable, sensible, affirmative action policies universities, will actually martyr Norman Wang will actually lead to a seven-figure settlement, will actually do the exact opposite of what it was intended to do. And that's what I think is the most um, sobering part of this entire tale. And why one must always be very cautious when joining a mob group. You can't just join because somebody tweeted a screenshot of a quote that you didn't like, you didn't like the way it was cut, you didn't like the argument, you got to read the full article. You got to come to your own judgment about the article. You got to ask yourself not only is this wrong, but by doing X, Y, or Z, will I help my side? Will we get some ground, gain ground? Are we going to lose ground? Norman Wang's side has gained a lot of ground through the conduct of this interaction. From this tweet, from resurrecting the article, he got much more readership, to the tweets condemning him, to the to the push to get him punished at his university, to this litigation that is going to be in the Western District of Pennsylvania, the United States District Court, is going to be successful. Um, at least a settlement, but he may put if he push takes it to court, they have I don't see a leg for them to stand on. They are done because unless there's no way you can retract an article like this without a process. You have to at least have a committee and have six weeks of judicial, you know, so the committee meets for six weeks to interrogate all the statements. You got to do all that effort. That, that's the simple, that's the simple procedural rules of the academy. You got to do all that. And if you don't do all that, you got no leg to stand on. This is astonishing to me. Why don't people see this? This are bigger issues than one person's article. 
The issue is the issue. Learn to fight and win the issue. I am sick of losing every issue. I hate losing. And all I see is my side losing. Losing, losing, losing because of bad messaging, aggressively pushing a platform that does not bring people together, and bad messaging, pushing for this, th this world where we start hanging people for writing a bad article. It's not going to help us win. And so I, I'm troubled. I think that this has taken away from the discussion that I thought was the right discussion, which is the right discussion is the Leah Littman discussion that's on the prior episode of this podcast, where Leah Littman makes the liberal case. She makes the, ju the judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg case for why universities should be permitted to engage in affirmative action policies as they see fit with a wide latitude so that they can evaluate what is working and what is not working. That's the RBG case. All these people, the same people that would tweet their RBG um, picture proudly are engaging in this tactic. RBG wouldn't do this. RBG wouldn't ask that, um, she wouldn't ask that Norman Wang gets fired. She would want to win in the legal court. She would want to flip the votes. You're not even true to your own idol. And I'm actually sympathetic to her because I like her a hell of a lot. She's a, a hero of mine too, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And John Paul Stevens, um, and 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 these other liberal justices um, who who really knew how to change the world for the better, and that is not, I think, attacking this guy for this article that no one was reading. Anyway, I hope that this is the last segment I have to do on this Norman Wang story um, because I suspect it will be settled privately. The number of emails I've gotten about this is great because there are a lot of people on my side in my exact same shoes, left-leaning progressive thinkers like myself who are troubled with the excesses of personal attacks against people who hold views on the other side. It makes them stronger, my friends. Don't keep attacking them. Ignore them. Like this article is worth ignoring. If the article was an order of magnitude better New England Journal paper, then they're better than, than, a, than a really tight rebuttal. Just, just, just take out the legs from the article. That's the way to hit it if it's New England Journal. Jaha, ignore, Jaha, who, who's reading Jaha? New England Journal, tight rebuttal. Um, and, 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 and if you feel strongly on this issue, I think you got to explore it a little bit more and understand where is the, the way to make the argument. And I really think the way to make the argument is to undermine the narrative that there is a meritocracy. So that, I mean, this is my strategy of how I would actually, and this is what I've articulated to you. I also think it's not just a strategy, it's actually correct, but it's also a strategy. Um, you undermine the claim that there is, in fact, a meritocratic ladder. There is not, I think, and I think that that can be shown. You, 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 you explore the idea that since there is not that, that there are many different ways and compositions of classes that universities might bring together, and that um, the university should have a law, a huge latitude in deciding what that range of views is, as long as they are not enforcing long-standing discriminatory policy, which was the entire purpose of the Civil Rights Amendment. It was not to limit the number of African Americans. It was to allow African Americans opportunity. Um, so I think that's the way to frame the argument, is to, have, is to, is to frame it as I framed it. Um, and to let some people go, you want to defeat the idea. You don't want to defeat the man or the woman. You want to let people go. You want to crush the idea. You want to win the idea, and you want to change votes. And and the way and 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 we on the left, if we don't get uh, this mob behavior under control on our side, uh, we are gonna we're gonna lose really hard. Uh, it's it we're gonna be you're gonna be so you're gonna lose so much you get tired of losing if you're not able to con control the strong 
vocal emotional response that is not tactical and not strategic. Um, and so those are those are my thoughts here. Norman Wang, uh, you can go find this this litigation uh, prediction here. Uh, seven-figure settlement, private settlement. You won't know the exact number. He probably will end in some arbitration where he's not allowed to ever talk about it. But um, he's been martyred already. All right, on that positive note, we'll wait for the next episode. So stay tuned. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.